remember the days when before we had GPS on our phones or you know we had we had a GPS just by itself you know for a while and but back in the day you had to use an atlas or roadmaps anyone use those anyone familiar with those yeah not very many people anymore right <laughs> no uh, I remember as a kid that uh, we went to uh, uh, we lived in Ohio we grew up in Ohio and Every few years, it seemed like we would try to fly out here to my family who lived up at the farm where we, where we now live and come out and visit. And one of those times, we flew through Chicago. And I remember Dad you know, had the AAA membership. And if you have a AAA membership, then you can go to the AAA local branch and get free maps, right? And they give you all these different free maps. And so Dad had gone, and he'd been working for a couple of weeks to, to collect all the maps we needed of the big cities between our town in Ohio and Chicago. And we had one of Chicago. And I remember as we got close to Chicago, Dad had me pull out the map. And, and we would get, you know, we'd be on, I can't, I don't remember, like I-80 or I think 80 and 90 kind of run together in there. And then there's this belt and all kinds of confusing. But, uh, but my dad had me pull out the map and he would say, okay, tell me what road is coming next. And so he would, he would tell me where we were and I'd say, okay, well then we should, and we're talking about, you know, the overpass. What road are we going to go over next? And so I'd have to kind of look at the map and figure out where we are and, and see, okay, well, we should, we should cross over this one and, and we would. And, you know, we, and I started feeling real confident in myself and, we, and the next one, the next one should be, and the next one should be, and, you know, kind of got this feeling where, where, wow, when you have a map, when you have a road map, you can figure things out. And, and this last summer, a few months ago, when we took our trip, I really wanted an atlas, and I never bought one. We had to rely solely on GPS. You know, that was kind of rough. But, you know, every night I would remember we would get into the hotel room, and I would spend, you know, 15, 20 minutes looking at the map, looking at from where we are to where we want to go tomorrow and the different ways we could take. And I, I, the nice feature about the GPS tells you how long it's going to take. And so, so you can say, oh, if we, if we go this far, then it's going to take us, you know, 10 hours. We were, we'd, you know, travel between 10 and, and 16 hours a day, you know, it was kind of a, one of those just we've got to haul the mail kind of road trips, you know. And uh, so we did that. And then on the way home, we left from Ohio, well, not Ohio, we left from Kentucky on Friday at 1. We went to see the Ark, you know, the big Ark encounter. I don't know if you've ever heard about that, but there's this life-size, actually made-to-scale Ark in, in, uh, in Kentucky, and we went and checked that out, and we finished up with that. We went through it pretty quick because we just kind of wanted to get on the road and start heading back home. And so at 1 o'clock, we left, and, and so we, we, we kind of cruise all the way through Kansas City, Missouri, and get a little bit past Kansas City, and we, we stop to eat dinner at Steak and Shake. Anyone familiar with Steak and Shake? No, didn't. Okay, a couple. Yeah. Steak and Shake is awesome because it's open 24 hours a day and it's cheap food, so it's good. And you can get a milkshake, um, really good milkshake. And so we're stopping there, and so I've got my phone out, and I'm kind of looking at this thing. It's like, oh, well, if we go, so I'm looking at, I want to get home as, as quick as we can. So, you know, if we go to this spot, then that means the next two days we can break up in about, you know, 13 or 14 hours of driving each day, and we could get home by Sunday night. And so, you know, we talked it over. So, yeah, let's do that. So, so we drove, you know, and then the next day it was just all just driving all through the most, you know, <coughs> boring parts of the, I mean, exciting parts of the country. Farmland, you know, it's just like how many, how many fields of corn and soybeans can you look at and 
still be enjoying the trip. No, it, it was good. It's good. So, so we, again, we got all the way through up and, you know, to uh, Wyoming, somewhere in Wyoming, outside, uh, I can't remember, La, La something. Someone will remember. My wife will remember and text me in. My grandpa lived there for a while. And then from there, we came home the next day on Father's Day and got home by about 9 o'clock that evening. And felt proud of myself because from Friday at 1 o'clock to Sunday at 9, we, cr- we traveled across the country. That's pretty fast. I was expecting I was, some kind of applause or like, I mean, like a good job there, but it was just, just no, no love for, for traveling across the country that way. But, but that reminded, thank you, thank you, appreciate that. Um, but then that reminded me of all the days, you know, planning out, planning out trips and in the old way and we would, in college, I was in a traveling singing group a couple of summers, and we would go from camp to camp and, and do music and be camp counselors at these camps, and, and the, the office at the school would send us with these instructions, and it didn't take us long to figure out that we had to double-check every single thing that they sent because they were using MapQuest, and this was back in the late 90s when MapQuest was still a pretty new thing, and if you remember what MapQuest was like back in the early 90s, you know, it wasn't always accurate, just like, like your GPS doesn't always get you where you want to go. For instance, if you try to use GPS coming out to our house, you may end up on some logging roads trying to get back to our house through a way where there really is no road that connects to our house because that's what the GPS thinks. Oh, there's some logging roads. You can get there this way, but you can't because the GPS doesn't know everything like it's supposed to know. And, and our school office back in uh, Indiana Wesleyan University, they didn't know everything they were supposed to know. And so they would just use MapQuest to give us this printed off list of directions. Remember the printed list of directions? It would have, you know, right turn. It would be like point zero one miles, right turn. It's like, so who tracks miles to the one-hundredth of a mile, right? Nobody does that, and so you're just like trying to figure out things, and so what we did instead was we got out the atlas, and we got the number of the camp, and we would call so that when we, when we were getting close enough, because most camps, you know, they're kind of hard to get into and kind of off the map and, and off in the woods a little bit, but we would kind of chart our own course using the atlas and not rely on MapQuest and some of those things. Now, I think it's important when we, when we come to the idea of overflow that we start in the right place. And Paul actually is going to tell us exactly where to start when we, when we read this passage. But, but in the future weeks, we're going to be talking about being filled up, so filled up with God's love that it overflows out of our lives in these different in these different ways. But before we do that, we have to, to know the way of love, right? We have to look at what love is, what it means to walk and live in love before we can even know what it means to be filled up with love. Google Maps, you can still print off directions from your computer just like that. You know, you can still print them off and they can still be wrong. And, uh, but we've got this idea of love, and, and if you have been around much, you know that, that we have the, the way of love that God talks about here and the way of the world and the world's love, which is really entirely antithetical and really in opposition to God's love. And so if we're going to understand what it means to be filled up with God's love, then we need to make sure we're being filled up with 
God's love. And just like GPS and MapQuest and all of these things, they can lead you off track if, if they're not taking you somewhere they know, then we need to follow the one who laid out the course of what love looks like. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm actually going to start a few verses before this in chapter 12 and verse 27. It says, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. All through that last chapter, Paul was talking about what it means to be the body of Christ and what it looks like and how God has brought all the different parts of the body together and how all together we are the body of Christ. And each one of you here is a part of the body of Christ. You have a part to play. You have a role to play in the body. And you have a critical function that you need to perform as a part of God's body, a part of God's kingdom here at 6-8 Church. But it's all of us together that form the body of Christ. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. And he's going to ask some questions, and he's asking rhetorical questions, and the answer to all of these questions should hopefully be apparent to all of us, but if not, I'll just give you a clue. It's no. So when I ask these questions, go ahead and answer them out loud with a no. Are all apostles... No. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Our, our no's are getting less enthusiastic as we go along. <laughs> Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No. See, there are, there are all these different gifts, and for one, if all of us had all of these exact gifts, well, that wouldn't be very interesting for one, and then wouldn't be very creative for two, and then we wouldn't really need each other for three. We'd just kind of be our own body all by ourselves. We wouldn't need anyone for anything. And so God has laid out all of these different gifts, and that's just kind of a cursory overlook of, of what the gifts are. There's a lot more to it than that. But, but God has given each person in the body gifts to use for building up his kingdom, and we don't all have all the same gifts. And he says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. But remember, he's been talking about the body, and we're going to do something today we've never done. We've talked about it a little bit, but we've never gone through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 thoroughly and just talked about everything that Paul is saying here to help guide us when it comes to love. Because here we have at the beginning of, of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it starts off with this, with this phrase. Paul says, and yet... I will show you the most excellent way. So here Paul is saying, hey, here is the roadmap. The roadmap to what, though? What is the roadmap that he's laying out for us? What is, what is the most excellent way that he's giving us? Is it just love in general? Is it how we, how we love you know, our, our spouses so that when we get married, you know, we can know what real love is? Is that the only way this passage gets used? Or, or is he telling us that as the body of Christ comes together, you're going to need love, and here is the most excellent way. This is the roadmap for how to be the body of Christ that looks like this. So I want to read it, and then we're going to break it down and, and cover a few things. But before we do, where do you think Paul drew all of these ideas of what this definition of love looks like? Did he draw it from, you know, just his imagination and his thinking and his creativity, or knowing what we know of Paul and his study of, of God and knowing 
all of the Old Testament Scriptures and everything that he needed to know there, and now his teaching of, of the new church as he's going out and sharing God's love with the Gentile church. Do, do we get this definition of love maybe from Paul's study of God's love for us? And if you look at these characteristics that we're going to lay out in just a minute, what you're going to see is that is exactly how God has loved us, and if this is how God has loved us, then we ought to also love others this way. If we have been loved and received this love, then this is the love that ought to overflow out of our lives. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Without love, believers are nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So without love, a believer is nothing. Without love, a believer gains nothing. Everything that we do comes from love. What kind of love? The world's love or God's love? Well, I don't think Paul's going to make much room for the world's love, but we should talk about it just a little bit because the world loves in a very different way than God has loved us. The world, the world loves in a very selfish way, right? We, we can see this in the whole world around us that the, the love of the world is all about me and essentially using and manipulating and taking advantage of the people and the world around me to get what I want out of the world so I can enjoy life the way I think that I'm supposed to enjoy it, right? That's how we would see the, the love of the world being played out. But the love of God is exactly the opposite. The love of God is not, not manipulating and taking advantage of people for my own sake, but pouring myself out for the sake of others. We see this example in Jesus Christ, which is what we're going to talk about in great detail in the weeks to come, that, that Jesus actually poured out his life in a loving way. And we hear this from Paul, that he poured out his life as a, as a drink offering, as a sacrifice of praise for those who were needing to hear of God's love. This is what the love of God sounds like. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor honor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. These are the characteristics of, of love. This is, this is the kind of love that we're supposed to be filled up with as a body of Christ. And as we are filled up with this kind of love, then, then it overflows out of our lives into the world around us. This is the roadmap that Paul is laying out for us on the kind of love that, that we need to have if we're going to be the body of Christ. And so those things that exist in, in opposition to these things, well, that would be the world's way of loving. So let's look at this, look at the different characteristics really quickly and just break them down in a, in a few seconds each time. 
Love is patient. You don't have to look very hard to see that the, the love of the world is not very patient, right? We, we live in a give me, give, give, me, give me now. Now, I want it now. I want it right now. Actually, I wanted it 10 seconds ago, and now it's too late. So please give me now. I don't know. Please just, I demand this now, right? This is how the world works. It's give it to me now, but the love of God is patient. So when it comes to the way we love one another in the kingdom of God, we have to be patient with one another. We have to understand that God is working on all of us, and we're all going through this journey, and we're all trying to follow this roadmap of God's love together, but, but some of us are a little bit further along. Some of us have a little deeper understanding, a little bit deeper knowledge, a little bit more depth of insight, and so we've got some things in our life that others don't quite have yet, and so we have to be patient with them as they come, and, and when we see things working out in the lives of others that don't quite seem to be like God's love, we still need to be patient with them because we're filled up with God's love, and that is what God's love in us does as we work it out to others. Love is kind. Some of the most hurtful things that have ever been said to me have happened in church. I've shared with you quite a bit how uh, some of the environments that I've been a part of in my life uh, as a worship pastor, 14 years as a worship pastor, and you know, four years as a senior pastor, is some of the most painful things that have been said to me have been said in the church. Some of the most painful things that have been said to my family members, to my dad who spent a life serving the church in ministry and, and other family members who are off serving God in different pastoral roles. The most painful things have happened in the church. I'm not saying there's not a place to, you know, for correction. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But but shouldn't our correction be within the bounds of love, and shouldn't it be kind? And most of the time, when, when, these, when these things are said, and I'm sure some of you have maybe received some of these things from church members over the years of, of your time in church, is that, that when these things are said that are unkind, they aren't really said out of a motivation for what's best for someone else. They're out of what's best for me, or what I want, or what I think I deserve. But that's not what God's love looks like. God's love is kind. God's love is not envious. I was listening to a pastor this week, and, and he was talking about coveting, and there's a little bit of that in this idea of, of envious, of, of being envious of what someone else has or the life someone else has and, and how, you know, if you look at the Ten Commandments, some of them, you know, don't quite make sense because thou shalt not covet. What is that? Why is that such a big deal to God? But, but if you look at it, what, what you're doing when you're coveting what someone else has or what you, what you look at someone else's life and you see that you want, then what you're doing is you're saying to God, I don't trust you. You haven't given me what I need. You're not providing me for me in the way that I think you are, so I am envious of what they have and I want it. It kind of comes back to, to loving God. 
That's a characteristic of God's love. It's, it's not envious. It's, it looks at those around us and, and it applauds them. It looks at those around us and, and encourages them and, and lifts them up instead of, instead of approaching it from envy and saying, oh, well, I wish I had that or I wish I could be like this or I wish I could think like that or I wish I was that smart or I wish I had that much passion or whatever it was. You know, that, that, that we, I just, we envy this and that's not what love is. Love is not envious. Love, love doesn't envy to steal from someone else what God has given them. Love receives what God has given me and celebrates what God has given others. Love is not boastful. Love, love doesn't, uh, doesn't walk around bragging about how awesome they are. You know, my grandfather, my grandpa Wilson, I've shared with you, he was the, the missionary and the evangelist. Um, I didn't learn this until after he died because my grandpa wasn't, wasn't a boastful man, but, you know, he was responsible for over 10,000 people coming to Christ over the course of his ministry. Had no idea until I was at his funeral, at his memorial service, that that was, that was the case. And that was because, you know, my, my uncles had done the research and digging into that. But, but he wasn't, he never, and he had done several revivals at, at our churches, and we'd listen to him, you know, and he was my grandpa, you know, we'd listen to him talk all the time, and I'd never heard him boast about a number like that. It's because love, love isn't boastful. Love, love realizes that, that the things that, that God produces in my life are gifts of God, and so there's no reason for me to boast in it. I'm going to boast only in God himself because that is what love does. Love doesn't give awards for being the most humble. Yeah, that's funny. The, hum, the, the humilitas of the year award goes to, I should look that up and see who texted that in. That's who gets it. I'm kidding. Love is not boastful. Love is not proud. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. That's a part of who we are here at 6-8 Church. A, a, a group of people who walk humbly with God. You cannot be proud and walk humbly with God at the same time. Pride is, is, is rooted in me and my own self-sufficiency, and humility is rooted in trusting God and His sufficiency in my life. The Bible actually says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We cannot even come to God and receive His grace if we have not humbled ourselves before Him. God is opposed to us when we're proud. We don't want God to be opposed to us, right? We want God to be on our side, or better yet, we want to be on God's side. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. You might say love doesn't, you know, just say things to, to get under someone else's skin. Love doesn't seek to intentionally wound or damage someone. Love, love doesn't do those things. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not all about me, right? Love is all about you. This is the love that we've received, so it can't be self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Things are getting a little more challenging here as we go on, I think. Love is not, not easily angered. That means, you know, when someone does something that offends us, or why are we so offended anymore? Actually, I wrote an article about that a long time ago. I'll try to find it and post it. Um, 
But I, I, I think I have a reason, and, and we were talking about this. Jim shared this insight, and, and uh, it's, you know, it's because you know, the, we live in a world where we define our own truth, right? And so if you are the definition of your own truth and your own reality, then anyone that comes into your sphere and your world and challenges that truth, then they're not just, you know, they're not just disagreeing with you. They are actually challenging you on the very core of who you are. And that's part of the problem with defining what truth is with each individual person. It's not just now a disagreement. It's actually a confrontation of who someone actually is, and that's a problem. That's why we've got to be rooted in God's truth, not in my truth. But we shouldn't be so easily angered, right? You know, we should all understand that we're all on this journey, and we're all walking together, and if someone says something that, uh, that bothers me or makes me mad, well, I'm not going to get angry at them, at least not very easily. He doesn't say don't be angry at all, but he says not easily angered. We can talk about that later. Here's a big one. <clears throat> Love keeps no record of wrong. This is one that I've struggled with, to be honest with, with all of you. It's a, those things that have been done to me in my past churches and past ministry experiences, it's hard to not keep track, right? Right? It's hard to not just keep a record of all of those things and just say, well, you know what, I, I'm, I'm never going to forgive you. And we feel justified in our unforgiveness because, well, you just don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said. You don't, you don't know how they treated me. You don't know how they acted towards me. You don't know the rumors that they spread about me. So we say, well, I, I just, you know, I'm just not yet ready to forgive. But have you thought the absurdity of that statement? I have. I've had to wrestle with it to the core of who I am. I'm not ready to forgive. I'm just, I'm just not there yet. I just haven't gotten there yet where I can forgive this person for what they did to me. But a life that is filled up and overflowing with God's love has no room to keep record of wrong. Why? Because God keeps no record of our wrongs. And if anyone has any reason to hold an offense over our heads, it would be God himself as he looks down on us from his holy righteous standing in the heavens and looks down on us. He could be easily keeping a record of wrong, and he could be easily angered when we make mistakes, and he could be easily you know, just, just mad at us for all of the things that we continually get wrong. But what does the Bible say? That the Bible says, well, that he takes our sins, and what does he do? He throws them as far as the east is from the west. You know, he, they are remembered no more. We have greatly offended God. We have greatly done disjustice in God's eyes, and yet he has no record of it. He keeps no record of it. He forgives us. He canceled the debt that we owed him and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That debt was canceled for us, and now he loves us, and he brings us in on love. Shouldn't we then operate in the same manner? Shouldn't we then keep no record of wrongs? Well, okay, well, someone offended me, someone hurt me, someone said this to me, or someone did that to me. So shouldn't I? Well, maybe we should just, just keep no record of it. One of the things we've said around here is, you know, to, to keep short accounts, and, and there's wisdom in that. We should, we should keep short accounts. We just shouldn't have long lists 
of things that upset us, but maybe even better than that is just no list at all, right? I mean, we all understand. We're all, you know, we're all walking on this journey together, and the, the course has been laid out for us, but we're on different parts of the journey, and so, so why do I need to keep an account at all? We just realize that we're all walking together towards love and what it means to be loved. Love keeps no record of wrong. What records are we keeping that need to be shredded? Love does not delight in evil. That's a vengeful kind of a thing where when something bad happens to someone else, you know, we can delight in the evil. Love always protects. Have you thought of yourself as the protector of your brothers and sisters in Christ? That when someone else is seeking to tear someone else down, you, you protect them, you stand up, you know, that love always trusts, love always hopes, love always perseveres. This is what love is supposed to look like, and this is the kind of love that we're supposed to be filled with. Persevering together as brothers and sisters of Christ, we, we persevere through it all. We, we walk through all of the struggles and all of the trials together. We are in this as the body of Jesus Christ because we understand that we are the body of Jesus Christ, and each one of us is a part of it. We understand that God has placed in the church all of us with all of the different gifts so that he can assemble a body together that best represents him and his love to this community and the people around us. This is, this is the point of being the body of Christ. The point isn't me and what I get out of it. The point is God and God's love. Verse 8, love never fails. Paul's going to lay out the superiority, the, the supremacy of God's love, how, how it is greater than all these other things. Look at this. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. I want to talk about that for just a minute because, for one, in the church there is a great danger to define myself by the gifts that I have, right? We, we start to find our identity in what I do or what I perform in the body of Christ. And what Paul is saying, look, love never fails. All of these other things, the, the prophecies, the, the, uh, the tongues, the, the knowledge, the, whatever it is that you have, they're going to pass away. The, those, have, those have an expiration date on it. But love will be eternal. Love is forever. Love will outlast everything. And he's talking, so we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Completeness is talking about that time when, when we are made new. You know, right? We've already been made new spiritually, but a day is coming when we will be made new in, in, in entirety. Entirety. Completeness. Wholeness. We will be wholly complete, and all of, the, all of the struggle with sin will be gone. All of the struggle with death, all of the struggle with all of the, the problems of the curse that is on this world will be gone when completeness comes. And when completeness comes, all of these things will disappear, but love will remain. Love never fails. 
When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. As we're growing up in love, we, you know, we understand that this is a process. When I was a kid, I talked like a kid, I thought like a kid, I reasoned like a kid, but when I became a man, I put those ways behind me and I, and I put on you know, manhood or womanhood. And so, so as we grow up in God's love, there should be some growing up in God's love where we start to put these aspects behind us once and for all and we start to mature and patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, keeping no record of wrong, does not delight in evil, protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres, kind of love that we should be growing up in. Verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We've talked about this idea that they didn't have mirrors quite like we have mirrors now, and so when they would talk about seeing a reflection, you could only see it dimly. It'd be like looking in a sheet of metal, you know, or looking in, you know, some kind of some kind of dish. You know, you could kind of see a reflection, but it's dim, right? It's not an exact reflection. You just get a little bit, or like when you look in water, you can kind of see a little bit of the reflection, but depending on the water, you can't really see a perfect reflection of of what you look like. But that's what it's like now. Now we we kind of have a little bit of a glimpse of. Of what it's like, but then we're going to see face to face. What, what we know partially, we will know fully when completeness comes. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. How are we doing? How are you doing when it comes to loving this way? Maybe we should also ask, how are you doing when it comes to receiving love this way? Do we kick up those walls of pride and say, you know, I'm I'm good. I don't need anyone else's love. Just leave me alone. Let me be myself, and I'll just kind of follow God in my own way. Or are we willing to say, you know what? God has assembled me in this body, and God has put this body together for my own good and for my own benefit so that I may become more like him and look more like him and love more like him. Kind of comes down to that question, whose, whose map are we following? Are we following the map of God's love that's been laid out for us? And this is, just, this is just a very tiny overview of what God's love looks like. There's so much more to this. God's love is so immense. God's love is so much bigger than I could really ever do in one sermon or even a series of sermons on how great God has loved us. But how are we doing when it comes to following the roadmap of God's love? Are we following it or are we following the world? Or worse, what I see happening often is are we trying to apply and bring in the rules of the world's love into God's family? When that happens, it is just flat-out destructive. Someone just asked, is this, how we, is this how we love others measured by how we're, how we're treated? <laughs> Did Jesus love just who loved him or even the ones who put him on the cross? We're going to get there in just a minute. Before we do that, though, I want to, I said earlier this summer that I was going to talk about 
my role as your pastor, and I want to bring that in here because I think it pertains to what we're talking about. A lot of people have an idea of pastor in their mind, and they have an idea of what the role of the pastor should be and what it should look like and what you know, my job should do. And most of it kind of boils down to, just to be honest with you, the things that nobody wants to do themselves. And so it's like, well, that's what we pay you to do those things, right? So, and that was kind of the thinking that, that, that has kind of persisted for a long time. It's like, okay, well, nobody wants to go visit anybody when they're sick in the hospital because it's weird, it's awkward if they're dying, I don't know what to say, and I might get sick and die at the same time, so I just don't want to go visit anyone in the hospital. Nobody wants to do funerals because they're depressing, and how do you do a funeral in a way that's not depressing? So we're just, and weddings, you know, weddings, they're fine, but, you know, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a hassle, you know, so we're, we're going to hire somebody to, to do those things so that we don't have to do them, and, and, uh, and while we're at it, we're going to expect him to do this, 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 this. <laughs> Well, eventually it just kind of became an idea, which a lot of churches even adopted, that we're going to pay people to do the work of ministry in the church so that the people of church can just kind of come and be a part of it, which really, I think, has served as a great uh, destructive force in the church, because that's never the picture that was laid out for us in the New Testament or even in the Old Testament in the way Israel lived as a community. Look at that. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. God has placed in the church, and then he lists out, first of all, prophets, second prophets, third, or first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. The body of Christ only works when everyone is doing what God has created them to do. The mentality that we pay someone to do all of the work of the church actually defeats and I think probably destroys the church. There is, and we've talked about this, no feasible possible way for me to run all of the ministries of the church, let alone be for you, all of you, what you would hope for me to be for you, right? And then you take that beyond to, its, to you know, the extremes is that I not only have to be, and I know it sounds like I'm just poor me, poor me, poor me. I'm, not, I'm really not doing that. But you know, um, if, I, if it goes beyond, not only do I have to be for you what you need me to be for you, but I have to be for your friends and your family and your non-believing friends and you know, network out there, what they need me to be for them, then it just becomes really impossible really quickly. God has designed the body to function that way, and he has designed and put you in the role to play that part. My role then becomes, as your pastor, not to do for you what God created you to do, but to help you not only do it and know how to do it, but to help you see what it is that you need to do. So we've tried to define my role here as pastor in in a few simple ways, and I wanted to lay those out. So, number one, my, my, my number one role here as your pastor is charting the course. This is what Paul was doing here with the Corinthians. He was laying out the course. He was just saying, here is the way, walk in it. And what God has given me to do is to study God's Word and study God's ways and, and know as best I can, as much as I can, about the whole picture of God and then set the mission and vision for us as a church. 
So that's my, my primary function is to, to chart the course, to look at what God is doing in our lives, what God is doing in bringing this community together, and look at the needs of the world around us and the community that God has planted us in, and do my best to, to see where we need to go so that we can reach who needs to be reached and shine the light of God's love into the darkness of this world. That's number one. Number two is leadership mentoring key leaders. And so those are some of the changes that you've seen us make over the last six or eight months is, is bringing up key leaders and putting key leaders in place and, and me trying to mentor them, although a lot of them have a lot to teach me as well because they've, they've been around the block a few times too. But doing my best as God has given me wisdom and insight from Scripture and other sources to train key leaders. The third thing is teaching and communicating, and so God has given me to do that because he's entrusted me with the mission and vision, and so, you know, uh, we're going to be working more and more as we've already installed deacons, then we're going to be installing deaconesses, and then in and, and the next year or so, we're going to actually be putting in an elder board and taking some of that role so it's not just all on me or on a few people, but we're going to be taking what God has given us as a church, and then communicating it for how you live your lives in the way of love. And the fourth one is just one that kind of applies to me because of how God designed me as creativity, using the creativity God has given to me to, to build you up and to find ways to do that. So that's, that's a part of, of what we're doing here. But these are the, kind of the four key areas Yes, I want to meet with you and encourage you as best I can. I can't meet with everybody every week. That's an unfortunate thing. I would love to, to be honest with you. I would love to meet with all of you all of the time. I would love to be involved in every single ministry. I would love to, to be a part of everything that is happening because I'm just so thrilled about what God is doing across this church, and I, and I think it's great, and I would, just, I would love to be a part of it, but, but when I try to do that, what ends up happening is I kind of suck the life out of everything because everyone, when the pastor is in the room, then everyone you know, kind of just looks to the pastor to, to do everything and make the decisions, and I'm not really there to empower people, then I end up becoming the person that, that takes on everything, and that's not healthy for the church or me. So my role then is helping you see, helping you see what you need and, and where you can grow towards God's love. My role is helping to chart the course and, and paint the picture and, and hopefully draw you in to what God wants to do in your life and, and draw you out of the ways of the world and draw you out of the lies of this world and to replace those lies with the truth of God. This is how it all kind of comes together as my role here at the church. And this is where I've started to just pour myself in as your leader. But I want to make, make something clear I've said this, and I know saying this doesn't really change it if you already think this, but um, I have no ulterior motives in leading this church. And I know that's what somebody who, had, who has ulterior motives would say, so that people wouldn't think that they have ulterior motives. But, but I really have no ulterior motives in leading this church. I'm not in this for me. I'm not in this. If I was in it for me, man, I would just honest, just kind of raw truth. I'd be, I'd be out of here because there are times it gets really hard. At times it gets really painful, times it gets really personal, times that I would just like to throw in the towel and just call it. But God brought me here on purpose, and he placed me here. And so I'm in this because God wants me to be here. So what is my motive? My motive is simple, building the kingdom of God and making disciples. That's my whole motive and what we're doing here. 
It's not making a name for myself. It's not making a name for 6-8 church or you know, trying to get some kind of notoriety in this way or that way. But it's seeing where God has brought us, looking at the people God has assembled here and seeing, like we talked about a few weeks ago, what, what we need to do to help you get from where you are to where God wants you to be. That's my whole role is, okay, where are we? I have to define reality, look at, look at the reality of where each and every one of us are, and then, and then with God's wisdom, with God's insight, with the, the, the support and encouragement of leaders around me, then we have to say, okay, here's what we need to do to get you from here to there. That's my whole role as your pastor. So we, as your leaders, we do our best to, to make the best decisions for this church, for the good of the church and of the body within the confines of the resources that we have been given. Unfortunately, or if, actually if you look at it biblically, fortunately, we don't and we can't always do everything that everyone wants us to do. We say unfortunately because selfishly we want everything to happen the way we want it to happen. But fortunately, what we learn through the process of not getting what we want is actually we grow up in Christ and we mature in Him. So we can't always do what everyone wants us to do. But this brings up a question, right? This kind of brings us to a, to a point. What do we do when motives clash? What do we do when it, when it feels like, okay, I want to go this way, but the pastor's trying to take me this way? What do we do? What do we do if we don't get what we want? Well, modern culture would tell us if you're not getting what you want, go find someone or somewhere that will give what you want to you. Right? I mean, that's kind of the way that, that the world works right now. So, well, if you're not getting what you want here, then just go find somewhere where you will get what you want. And, well, that's not what we would teach or what we would believe. Because we believe that this family that God is knitting together is a covenantal community. And as you read through the book of Acts and you read the kind of community that God was assembled here, they were assembled in a covenantal kind of way. There wasn't just, okay, when I'm feeling like it, I'm going to be a part of it. There was no, I'm sold out, die hard committed to this community because I'm sold out, die hard committed to the love of God in my life and as it works out in the lives of those in this community. And we cannot, listen, we cannot... We cannot have the love of God and not be covenantally committed to a community. It's not possible. Because look at what we said about what love is. What is love? Love is patient. Oh, I'm not very patient, so I'm going to go find somewhere that I like. You know? And then so, well, that's not the love that we've received. This is just my worldly love. Love is kind. Love is not envious. Love is not proud. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Well, See, we, we cannot receive the fullness of God's love and then not be covenantally committed to a community. In fact, could it be that, that if we can just change our perspective just a little bit, could it be that when these differences arise, there are actually tools that God wants to use to grow us and sharpen us and develop us? When these differences arise, it's not, because, it's not my chance to be personally offended and mortally wounded. It's actually my chance to, to receive a little bit of correction and training and shaping and sharpening so that I can become more of what God wants me to be. Shouldn't, shouldn't maybe that be a little bit of our perspective if we're following the roadmap of love, if we're being filled up to overflowing with God's love? Wouldn't that be the roadmap of love that, that we're supposed to follow? And then when differences come, then it's just an opportunity to grow and sharpen and change and become 
more like Christ. But the Bible actually does give us some help. First, I think we have to ask this question, is it a difference of opinion or sin? This should be the main thing, and I'm not talking about trying to find you know, a, a, a proof text to prove that it's sin. I'm talking about actual, legitimate, biblical sin, because there are pastors and leaders who, who use their position to their own advantage and to manipulate people, and so we need to be careful of that. So we don't just want to make a, you know, a, a blanket rule, but is it a difference of opinion or is it a sin? Because what I said earlier about truth and how we internalize our own truth and our own version of what the truth is, then simple differences of, of opinion become sins in our minds. And we think, I cannot abide by that. And we build them up, and, and we build them up, and we build them up, and they become a sin. But is it really a sin? Have you, have you spent time praying to, to, the, to discern if it's a sin? Have you spent time in God's Word to discern? Do you, do you know for sure that it's a sin? If it's a sin, then it's clear what to do. But when did we stop being able to have different opinions and not have good relationships? Not to, you know, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but there are a lot of people I disagree with on major things that I still have a good relationship with. There are people that I disagree with on, on, on biblical things and their understanding of the Bible, and yet I still walk with them in community and fellowship because I understand that, that, that the, the unity of the body is more important than my own opinions. If it is sin, and even if it's not sin, we have some points from Jesus we can use. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, Jesus says, if, key word, if, we just talked about that, did your brother or sister sin? Did they actually do that? You have to actually answer that question before you go any further. If your brother sins or your sister sins against you, if they did that, then if it's sin, you go and point out their fault just between the two of you. But but you but you mean I can't I can't I can't uh, I can't call and you know ask for someone to pray for this situation because you know or or you mean that I can't seek godly insight and wisdom and counsel you know there's a place for that I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying there's not but but the first time if there is if your brother or sister sins go and point it out just between the two of you if they listen to you you've won them over that's what Jesus said go between the two of you see if you can work it out. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, why do we take others along? It's not, listen, we don't take others along to, to back up our point of view, right? We don't take others along so that we have some support in the fight so that if we get the knockout punch thrown on our jaw, we have someone else who can step in the ring and fight for us. That's not why we take one or two others along. It's not so that we can finally win the fight because we've overpowered them. Listen, what Jesus says Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Remember, Jesus is talking about sin here. He's talking about legitimate sins. 
And if, and if you're dealing with someone who is living a life of sin and you've already confronted them face to face and you bring someone else, what you're looking for is the witness or the testimony that says, you know what, we confronted them on this issue and they're unrepentant, they're not willing to turn away from the sin that is causing this destruction, and we have two or three people that can back that up. They said, no, I'm not going to turn away from this life of sin, I'm going to keep living in sin. That's the point. And so that, so that your testimony about the fact that they're still living in sin is valid because that's what the Bible says, but that, that testimony has to be validated by two or three witnesses. And then, this is one that I've actually been in churches where they practice this. We've never practiced it here. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That's pretty harsh. I would just say, don't make us have to treat you like a pagan or a tax collector. Right? But I want to make sure you notice, I think there is wisdom when it's differences of opinion to still follow the first couple parts of Jesus' instruction here. But listen, when it's difference of opinion and not sin, there is no cause to excommunicate someone. There, there's no cause to, to, to eternally divide, you know, like on the Mason-Dixon line. You know, it's like, we just can't get over this. We've been feuding for centuries. You know, there is no cause for that in the church. When it's a difference of opinion, you just realize, okay, we're not going to agree on this, but that's okay because we're in the body of Christ, and there's something more important than my opinion that's drawing us together. It's the love of God. So my hope and my prayer is that as we, as we start to move forward into this idea of, of overflowing with God's love and the lives of the world around us is what we're going to be talking about, how God's love should just naturally overflow out of our lives into the lives of the people God has put around us, is that, that we'll understand, you know what? It's God's love. God's love is the, the, the centerpiece of it all. And this is what it looks like to be filled up with God's love. This is what it looks like to live a life of love in the community of Christ. And so, so my goal, my aim, my passion as a follower of Jesus Christ is, is to not get hung up and caught up on all of these little things anymore, but to, but to surrender my will. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. To surrender my will to his will and his higher purposes and higher calling for my life and say, you know what, I'm going to lay my why down and pick up your why and say, wherever you take me, that's where I'm going to go because you laid out the roadmap from before time began. I ought to trust you 100%. That's the roadmap for us. So we ought to love one another with such a radical, undying, selfless love. Listen, we ought to love one another with such a radical, undying, selfless love that the world sees how we love one another and wants to be a part of that kind of life-giving community. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus said, we've talked about this before, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the love of God. This is the, the selfless love that goes to the cross for all of humanity, knowing 
that a lot of humanity is going to reject that love anyway. This is the selfless love that sacrifices itself before anything has been done in return. Think about that just for a second, if you will. Maybe we can get just a little bit of perspective on God's love because Jesus died on the cross thousands of years ago to pay the price for your sins, to set you free from the bondage of your sin, and he did it thousands of years before you even existed. And he knew the sins you would commit, and it gets better, He knew the sins you would commit after you put your faith in Him and all the mistakes you would make and how you would offend the love of God with choosing to walk in your own way, and He still died for you anyway. This is the way we ought to love one another. Sacrificial, I'm going to lay my life, I'm going to lay my pride, I'm going to lay my rights, I'm going to lay everything down. Lay it all down for the good of the love of God, which is exemplified and lived out and shown in the community of Christ. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Not as the world loves, the way I've loved. That's what Jesus says. is Not the way anyone else thinks about love, but Watch me, fellas. This is is right before he's about to go to the cross. These are some of his final words. And the hours before he goes to the cross, he says, look at me and look at the way I have loved you and look at the way that I am still loving you and look at the way I'm going to love you even though you betray me, even though you run away from me, even though you hide off in the bushes and you don't want to see what's happening to me, even though you're doing all of these things to reject me, I still loved you in this way. And what am I telling you as my followers, as my disciples, as those who are going to come after me and live this life that, that I'm teaching you so that you can share it with the world. Love each other the way I'm about to show you my love. Oh, and by the way, he's going to say in just a few verses, you're not going to have to do it on your own. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, to come. And not only will he teach you all things, but he will empower you to live this life of love. Can you imagine what it would look like if we just became sold out, diehard, 100% committed to being a community that loved each other this kind of way? That loved each other selflessly, that loved each other to the point of death, and, and just radically gave up ourselves for the good of the body around us. Do you know what I think would happen? Is I think that the unbelieving world around us would, would be so drastically drawn to what God is doing. And you know what? We're really so far down this road. There's already such great love here in this church. There's already such great love in this community. So I want to encourage that. But at the same time, I want to, to paint the picture that, that there's still more we can go. There's still more we can go when it comes to loving one another. And as we love one another in this radical, undying, selfless kind of a way, the world will be drawn to it because there's nothing in the world like it. We cannot, we must absolutely refuse, we must absolutely stand with our fists clenched on the fact that we will not allow our church to become changed into thinking the way the world thinks when it comes to love. We are going to hold tightly to the love of God, and we're going to stand firm on the love of God, and this is going to be our battle cry because this is what we're filled with. This is the only thing that can overflow out of our lives, and this is the only thing that has a shot at changing the brokenness and fallenness and darkness of the world around us. Let's be that church.
Let's be that kind of people. Let's be that kind of body that says, you know what? No, no, no difference of opinion is going to separate me from this body because God has placed me in this body and he did it on purpose. He's got a reason for me to be here and I'm going to find my role to play and I'm going to play that role as best I can and I'm going to do it for God's glory, not for my glory and I'm going to be a part of doing what God wants to do in this community to reach the, the darkest places of this community so that the love of God might shine brightly in the darkness and his name might be glorified from now until forever from this day forward in Jesus' name. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, as we look at what it means to be filled up with your love and have that love overflow, I pray, Father, for a supernatural humility in each and every one of us, that even now in this moment, if there is some offense at the words I have just spoken that you, through the power of your Spirit, alive and active and at work in this place, would, would point to that, to that area of, of offense and say, there's a reason you're feeling that way and, and show us through your truth how you want to correct that in us. For those of us who may be feeling guilty or conviction, Father, I pray that that the spirit who, who raised Christ from the dead would, would put to death the guilty conscience and restore a clean conscience in us. And that we would be able from this point forward to live according to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Father, set us free from the powers of sin and death and deceit. Show us where our lives are in contrast with your word and help us to see in humility ways that we can adjust accordingly and that our passion, our desire, the cry of our heart would be to follow you, to live in your love, to love one another, and to show your love to the world. We surrender now to our ways. We surrender now to our agendas. We surrender now to our desires. We even surrender our opinions and we lay it all down at the foot of the cross. And we pick up this mantle, the mantle that was given to us, the mantle that was paid for us to have and carry. Father, let us be a body that picks up the mantle of God's love and lives eternally in that love. In Jesus' name, amen.